Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're very lucky to be joined yet again by Scott Voloshin. How are you doing, Scott? Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you so much for taking up your bank holiday. I was saying off air, your bank holiday weekend, your bank holiday Monday, uh, slam bag in the middle of it uh, to do a lovely podcast, but it is raining outside. So how, how are things going there, man? How have you been since the last episode? Uh, th- things have been good. Um, I've done a, a couple of talks. I went to a couple of conferences and um, now I'm just back relaxing and um, yeah, just figuring out maybe I'll write another book or something. I haven't decided yet. Oh, you see, you scratched the itch. I remember the last time we spoke to you, which I think it was the, no, it was in February we spoke to you about that, with the, about your recent book, your great book. And uh, yeah, it's the same as you're scratching another itch, you know, to write another one. So the pain has kind of subsided, has it, from like the thought or the thoughts, you know, the remembering of it, and now you want to do it again. Yeah, I think I, I kind of like writing books. It is it is painful doing it. The writing is painful, but it's kind of nice that people seem to say nice things about it. It's got good reviews on, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it makes me very happy. I was just wondering, like, how do you kind of balance kind of the conferences you go with work, with, with writing, with learning? Because, you know, you've got to think of up ideas to then present. And it must be an, quite a balance. It, it is actually, for me, it's more of a, it's more of a sine wave than a balance. I, like, I tend to overdo it. I get a lot of conference invitations and I kind of go to them all and then I get exhausted. And so I don't, then I kind of cancel and then I just don't go to any more for like another six months. And then I... Then I start thinking it might be fun to go, and you know, that's so it, it goes back, again, it goes back and, and forth. Back yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's the same thing like anything. You enjoy something. I mean, I get very in, you know into something, and then I kind of get not exactly burned out, but I it's like okay, I've had enough of that. And then you know, six months later, you come back to it, and uh, you think, oh, that's fun. I should do that again. Yeah. But it, but the thing is, with your talks and everything, because they're so in depth and they're so, I mean, you always flush your talk out so well, and you know, it's such, such interesting things you talk about, and we talk about your, you know, your most recent one today for sure. It, you know, you do have to invest a lot of time, so yeah, it, it must be you just engross yourself in this topic, uh, and then yeah, it can not burn out, but definitely kind of need a little bit of a rest. Yeah, exactly. It's it's balance is really important, and. Um... That's something I'm working on. <laughs> I think we all are, but uh, it helps to live. I have to say, I don't live in a big city, and that really helps to have some outdoor activities and some quiet time. So I'm not stressed out, you know, outside of doing stuff because uh, just being able to walk down the street and I live right at the sea, that's very nice. And, you know, I've got greenery around me. So I think that's very important. The good yin to the yang of kind of like, yeah, de- dealing with the programming, dealing with being in the office and then being able to get out and kind of see, you know, wildlife and, and more important things in some regard. Exactly. Yeah. Programming is not the most important thing in the world. <laughs> You've heard it here first, folks. You know, shock horror. We all we all take it for granted. Yeah, right? I think that's actually one of the things as you get older. I used to be very, you know, I used to work really hard and people would I'd do a lot of overtime and I'd always believe when people said, oh, this, this project has to be done by next the end of next week. It's so critical. And after you've done that you know, a few thousand times, you realize, actually, these things are never that critical. And it's not the end of the world if the project doesn't get finished. And, you know, you start realizing there's a bigger picture. There's more to life than deadlines and stress, you know. 
it loses its it's the whole boy or cry wolf thing isn't it because after a certain amount of time it can't always be that critical because it was it critical than the th- last time or was it is it more critical now it doesn't it loses it doesn't it yeah the kind of impact this kind of stress thing and in the in the big picture you look on the you know when you start looking at a, a five-year time scale a 20-year time scale um these things are just not very important in the big scheme of things yeah, you're not going to remember it five years down the line, that one, because there'll be undoubtedly another one just, you know, down around the corner, isn't there? That's right, which is why this thing that I'm just leading into this, that's a good lead into this talk, because it's all about looking at the big picture and we tend to be so focused on the on the on what's right in front of our face that stepping back and looking at the big picture can be really a, a useful thing. It helps you set up a context and it's good. It's a good learning uh, for all of us to, to look at big picture rather than, you know, tiny pictures. No, absolutely. And yeah, you mentioned it there. So your recent talk, Four Languages from 40 Years Ago, um, you know, it's it's just hit the right, um, the Vimeo. So I was straight on it, listening to it, watching it. Well, I think I've watched it at least five times now. I, I love it. It's absolutely, you know, in, really, really interesting. Uh, well, it's actually, you say four languages, but in quote, really, it's five. Uh, you know, it's got a great little uh, twist at the end. Yes. It's got a, it's, it's got, yeah, I won't reveal the ending. <laughs> no, it's a very good ending. Very good ending. Um, I just wondering kind of, so what did you actually make you kind of think about this talk? And, you know, like, yeah, it was a really interesting topic to discuss. Well, because I've been around, as I say, back in the 70s when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and I was actually around <laughs> I then. That, <laughs> I know, it's an old joke, but it's still funny but because people think that in the 70s everyone was a dinosaur uh, and that we got there's nothing you know that people can learn from that time well they all think that oh you know i suppose it's like technology where technology has changed in some regard where like oh mobile phones back in the day they were so big now they got small everything must be in quotes better now right but yeah little do they know exactly and that's and and the thing is you know i've learned a lot of languages over my uh, my career and i've had a lot of experience and I was sort of disappointed to find that some people I talked to uh, actually are, are, don't actually have that. And I think in a funny sort of way, you know, learning to program a long time ago, you were actually exposed. There weren't these giant kind of um, uh, dominant uh, monopolies in terms of programming languages. And so people tried out all sorts of different things. And um, as a result, you tend to have a, a very wide base of experience. And I think – People think today that everything is just Java or, or C sharp or Go or JavaScript, whatever it is. You know, and there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a big world out there. Obviously, yeah. You say from the seventies, and you, you did. You, you know, you kind of very much focused on that that decade. At the beginning, it was really interesting. You spoke. You know, you discussed kind of leading up to that into the sixties. But it seems that the seventies kind of everything kind of hashed out, and there was a lot of really impactful languages. Uh, what? Why? Why do you think that was? Um, it's, it's a good question. I think one of th- one of the reasons is that people started taking computers i mean in the earlier times it, it just even getting a computer to work was a hassle and you know the whole concept of inventing an assembly language to make your life easier and then fortran came along uh, and that was a, like you could even run it on different machines you didn't have to program in an assembly because that was all kind of amazing that you could just even do that but uh, when when computers became more mainstream and i think cheap computers started happening in the early 70s you could actually have a computer in your own you know department you could actually afford a computer for a small team you didn't have to have a massive mainframe you know and i think as a result a lot more people got interested in uh computer it was just more accessible to people and and 
and then the ideas start flowing yeah. and people get, you know, to experiment and, and with it. And more stuff started being done with software. And rather than, you know, designing a piece of hardware that would do a task, people would write software that would do the same task. And that was, again, a, a pretty uh, radical concept. And it wasn't just programming language. All sorts of stuff, you know, were invented in the early 70s, um, you know, networking and printers, uh, you know, laser printers. And if you look at all the stuff that came out of Xerox Park. Um, just yeah, I mean, just everything—everything everything that we think of to do with modern computing was pretty much invented in the seventies, I think. Which, for a lot of people today, is a shock horror. And you know, people won't think you know functional programming, FP, you know, AI, you know, Prolog, all these kind of logic programming, all these things that we kind of say, you know, even now people are still trying to wrap their heads around and, and feel that they're kind of you know foreign to them. Uh, yeah, that was all invented. Uh, you know, back in the 70s. Yeah, and people were thinking deep thoughts. I mean, what's interesting is that even though the technology was crude, the people thinking about the potential of technology, um, you know, were deep thinking some profound thoughts. I mean, Alan Kay was thinking about, you know, little, little tiny tablets that you could carry around with you. I mean, you know, that was very advanced. And, you know, now we have them. But Alan Kay was thinking about what could you, if you had one, what could you do with it? You know, if you had the internet, if you could have all the computers in the world connected to each other, what kind of thing could you do with that? You know, so people were already thinking about it. But obviously, it made it hard. But the, um, like I say, the ideas, you know, the in, in the various kinds of concepts of you know relational databases and logic programming and functional programming, you know, they weren't necessarily performant then, but they, the, the the people were experimenting with it. That's it. The germ of the idea, and actually, yeah, hashing out to a point where you know they really were thinking how it could be applied was there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought it'd be really interesting actually to take a step back as well. Like kind of, I think, you know, we, we jump into programming languages, uh, you know, we jump into implementation, we jump into the idea of, yep, we're going to use a programming language for this and stuff. Uh, and I, I'm taking my personal time, taking a step back and looking into electronics more and um, kind of understanding the fundamentals of electronics, understanding 8-bit computing. So there's, there's a lot of things on YouTube at the moment where you can build like these 8-bit computers just made out of breadboards and stuff. And very fundamental stuff that I overlooked a lot and especially my, my learnings from growing up and everything. I kind of never really, because everything was so much more high level it really didn't, you know, come around. So I'm very much enjoying that at the moment. And I thought it would be really interesting to kind of discuss fundamentally what is a programming language and, and why we have, so, you know, these high-level languages. What what problem are they there to solve? Um, it's Yeah, it is, it's just to solve people being fed up <laughs> flipping switches on the... I mean, you know, even assembly languages were something because originally you would literally flip the switches on the, on the thing to program it. And it's like, well, you know, each combination of switches let's you know call that a, a, a give that a symbol and then we can interpret those symbols and and program the computer that way um you know with the punch cards and, and all that stuff and then like i say fortran came along and fortran was a massive improvement i mean the idea you could write a program you know and not have to worry about which particular computer it was running on you could compile it for different target operating system so it was all up to the language and the compiler to deal with the translation to that particular architecture yeah i mean the the idea i mean we're always we're always focused on abstraction and we always like to make things more abstract or more high level in general and and um the idea is we anything that gets in the way of programming which is kind of irrelevant um 
it's just you know it's not relevant it, knowing how like if i'm doing uh, if i'm adding up a list of numbers how it actually works in the cpu i don't actually care as long as i get the right answer so rather than having a bunch of assembly language instructions in fortran i can write a loop and it will just do it for me you know and that's uh, that some you know let the compiler figure out what the assembly languages instructions are for that and then of course you know, languages like Fortran and then, you know, later on C and stuff. I mean, they were very high level at the time, and now they're considered low level because we have even higher abstractions. I was thinking that's exactly it. I mean, people will go about, I'm going down into C language, and people are like, whoa, yeah, that's really low, but that's far from it, you know, far from what actual low level is. And it's funny you say like a loop. You know, now we look even more high level when we think of it as a map or something of that, you know, it's the paradigm shift. We'd have a function that does a, 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 a map to do a sum or something rather than, rather than uh, having an explicit loop. So the abstractions, um, uh, you know, and it's always, it's just relevant to what your particular thing. I mean, if you're doing hardware, you know, programming in C is pretty high level. If you're, if you're doing a, a business application, then C is probably kind of too low level. So it's, it's all relevant to where you are. It's all context specific, you know. And that really does lead on to different paradigms because, you know, at the moment, there, the, the general it's very interesting with this idea of a general purpose programming language uh, and you know i think that's one of the things definitely taken away from your talk and stuff and the different you know the prefer of different languages out there and the more you investigate into languages the more you realize you know well and also actually sorry you mentioned it in the talk you know what are you going to use you know for this particular job and there's the joke of you know the hammers and toolkits you know like i'm always going to use a hammer you know because that's the general purpose language we you know it's like oh, i know php i know python i know ruby i know java i know c sharp i'm going to use the same language for the same thing uh, for, for each different problem i have um what is then a programming paradigm um that's a good 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 question i would say that it's a way of it's a mental model of solving solving a problem. I mean, the the idea of of writing a program is to is to solve a problem, is to get the computer to do something for you, and you know, depending on uh, you have different ways thinking about thinking about how to solve the problem will give you different solutions. So if you if you want to, I mean, a very simple example is relational programming versus you know imperative programming. If I want to query a bunch of records in a relational model i the model that i have in my head is that the 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 data is stored as a set of relations and i can you know filter on the relations and project on the relation order if i'm thinking of an imperative model uh, i'm thinking about well i need to open a file and loop over all the data structures in the file and extract the the model that you th- you know the model that you are uh, th- uh, thinking of it affects the way you program. Uh, definitely in your head. If you if you think of things in a certain way, then you're going to program in a certain way. And you know we we are familiar with the imperative model, the classic and procedural way. Most of us are also familiar with relational way of thinking. And it's funny. I mean, when you sometimes people who aren't familiar with the relational databases and they try and program SQL like they're programming. Uh, Java, you know, and they start a little loop in the, in the database. Like, and that's not how you program SQL. You need to get your, you have, it's this way, this thing that it changes the way you think about programming. You, you, it's suiting that domain, that problem domain, and mapping, you know, the ideas that you want to, you know, think of it that way, you know, to it that's best suited. And so it's a way of thinking. It doesn't, it's not necessarily tied to a particular programming language. For example, you can do in C Sharp, you have link 
where you can sort of do relational kinds of stuff inside C Sharp. So it's not that the language itself uh, determines which which paradigm to use, but um, understanding what the paradigms even are, you know, it, it, the, using link in C in C Sharp is a, is a very different way of programming than than using the imperative style in C Sharp. Absolutely, and I think that may be the thing at this time where languages are blurring the lines a lot, aren't they? You don't have very strict languages, and I think it's nice to go back. and It's interesting. I think I don't know whether you've actually read the book, the Seven Languages in Seven Weeks book, and then the follow up, the Seven More Languages in Seven Weeks book. Books, those ones that touch upon, you know, a, a prefer of well, seven languages in each book, but they touch upon a prefer of different paradigms, but very fundamental different paradigms, and explain the different ones and you know how they're almost to the extremes of each. Whereas now, you know, in the languages, the general purpose in quote languages we use, they blur the lines between solving a lot of different things using a different bunch of different paradigms. You know, I can write PHP code in a functional manner, or as you say in Link, you can write C sharp and you can use like relational kind of mappings over things and, and kind of, you know, this, this thing and, and functional as well. So, you know, it, you also with a bunch of imperative stuff, if you really want, and some OO put in there as well, it's kind of chucking a lot of different ideas in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, mean, I think for learning a, a paradigm, it is best to go for a pure uh, a language that's, I mean, so, so you know, with different paradigms, some languages in, literally embody the paradigm in the way they are structured. So in SQL, you have no choice but to use relational style, you know, programming. And in in kind of basic C, you, you pretty much use, have to use imperative stuff. Um, so if you're going to learn to do object-oriented programming or you're going to learn to do logic programming, yeah, it's really good to use a language where the whole paradigm is sort of baked into the language. You don't get the best of the paradigm, do you, really? Because you're only getting a little piece of it or it would be blurred in with others. You don't really see the full potential of that one paradigm if you don't see it you know, in its entirety looking at it, especially for learning. It can just be very confusing to kind of dis- disambiguate which bits yeah, are which. Yeah, and also you fall back on what you're familiar with. If you're, if you're trying to learn functional programming but you're using Java or something, it's, it's kind of hard because you're going to be falling back to – you know, immutable state and so on. It's a bit like learning. It's just like learning a, a foreign language. You know, if you want to learn um, French or Italian or stuff, it's hard to learn when you're when you're surrounded by English speakers. You know, if you go and if you if you really want to learn, you need to immerse yourself in that culture and and not speak any English. And by the time you've done that for six months, then you'll be you know a decent French speaker, or whatever. That's the same kind of thing for learning, say, logic programming. You need to immerse yourself in Prolog or whatever, it's really hard to do it if you're embedded in a, in a language which really doesn't have that as its main design. Absolutely. And it's funny because in the in the talk, you know, you, you have this kind of galaxy brain seal of approval uh, system, which I really like. And, you know, it's kind of these different languages that over time have kind of embodied those particular paradigms and really shaped them. Um, it'd be really interesting maybe to actually, again, go back a little bit further, you know, looking into these paradigms and maybe just kind of having a brief overview of, of each paradigm, if, if you don't mind. So, uh, it'd be interesting. So what actually then is, I mean, we're all very familiar with it, but like kind of, a de, you know, defining what is an imperative procedural, you know, programming language or paradigm? Um, well, the idea is you, you, that's a good question. I never actually thought how to define it, but it's, it's a bit like fish in water. We live in it so much that we can't even conceive. I think that's the problem, isn't it? We just, it blends into everything. It's very statement based. Yeah. Very yeah. Things are statements. You You have variables and you change the variables using statements not expressions and then you can group a bunch of the a bunch of statements into procedures 
uh, named procedures which you then execute to do something. Um, and that goes all the way back to, you know, to Fortran, Algol, Fortran. I mean, you know, Algol was like, Algol is really, if you look at what Algol looks like, it really looks like it could have been invented yesterday. It's really not that different. And that's 1960. So, I mean, I think it, in terms of defining it, it's, it is defined by, also, I guess it's trying to divide by just a higher level version of what um, the von Neumann computer, the, the CPU looks like. You have registers, you have a, you know, you have memory that you can address, you have pointers to these things. You mute, you mutate the data at those memory addresses, um, and you know, in a language like C, that's really really explicit in the design of the language that it's it's trying to be just you know just a one layer above the hardware. I mean, ironically, the hardware has completely changed now, and you know, modern language, the, the you know CPUs aren't designed that way. They have pipelines and they have all you know the different levels of caches and all that stuff. That's not captured in um, mainstream programming languages. So, ironically, something like C doesn't actually represent. There is abstractions underneath it, even still, <laughs> even more so. And then, obviously, the, the next one, which we're all very familiar with, is the object-oriented approach, and it's been, you know, heavily used because of, you know, the ability to be able to abstract kind of these common domain patterns that we have. You know, problems spaces are, are mapped very well to an OO approach and actually it would be interesting what why then is because i mean you know imperative procedure that came around as i say von neumann it's very it's very easy to understand kind of why it would bubble up to that you know where you've got these levers of abstraction and eventually you get here and it's like oh well, this is a good layer for people to stop and be able to write with and use on a day-to-day basis because they can you know compile down to these different you know and then obviously we see you know that was very influential with unix and whatnot um, but OO, why why was OO so popular and and has been so popular and remains such a popular paradigm to use? Well, I think it was it was the first paradigm to really emphasise um, two two things: encapsulation, first of all, the idea that it was data hiding, uh, that there's things you can't talk to, you can't actually get to the data. You have to go through an interface, you know, public methods we would call them nowadays to get to the data and and the second thing is that it's behavior based the idea is that i don't care what the data actually is as i just care about the behavior of the data um so again it's it's the the api the the public interface we would say is the most important part uh, of the application and and the actual implementation is not so important i mean it's not the, it's not what's exposed so that by by having little mini if you think of a class as a little api by having these little mini apis all over your your application then uh, you've got modularity you've got encapsulation you've got all these good things um, so I think that's why it, it was very popular. That's why it kind of took off because it, it it kind of encapsulated. People knew that modularity is important. People knew that working with interfaces and data hiding was important. And so object-oriented programs sort of in, in, really represented that very well. Because it came around from Simula, didn't it, 67? Yeah, there's two schools. There's the Simula school and there's the Small Talk school. And the Simula school is... You know the the kind of similar to the the the, the Java, the modern sort of types programming with Java and C sharp and so on, and then the Smalltalk school um, was what I would call you know real OO programming. This is where it's very controversial, but to me, it really, really is object oriented programming. Similar, I don't think similar was ever actually called object oriented programming at the time, but um, 
small talk is a very, very different way of thinking about programming. And so people who are used to using mainstream object-oriented programming languages, if you using small talk is actually a very different experience. I was going to say, yeah, definitely. I'd say recommend to watch the video and watch your demo with it, you know, playing around with it and you'll be amazed, you know, even the ifs and the else's and whatnot. And it all just makes sense. It's very simple constructs that just, again, used to the nth degree in a paradigm to, to emphasize its use. It's interesting because with Java and C Sharp and these languages, you know, they're OO, but they're imperative as well, you know, but they're, they're yeah, it's very strange actually, because they're not, they're not totally either or. They're a bit of both, aren't they? Like they don't want to deal with the memory management too much. So they let the garbage collector deal with that. So they don't have to be that low level and they can have some OO concepts. And obviously now they're doing the functional stuff. And yeah, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, like I say, small talk is pretty mind-blowing uh, for many reasons. There's the OO, the fact that it really is object-oriented at, at every level. Um, the fact that it doesn't have a file system. The fact, yeah, it has an IDE, a, very, a fantastic IDE that was you know, in the 1980s, which is still basically what IDEs look like today. Um, it doesn't have control statements. Um, it's just everything about it is really amazing. I have to say, it's one of my favorite, all-time favorite languages, and I highly recommend everyone learn it. I, you know, how useful it is for for day-to-day programming is different, but in terms of this galaxy brain, you know, does it help? Does it make your head explode? Then definitely it's up there, Absolutely. Uh, there's an, a great uh, Alan Purvis has come up with some a great uh, you know st- uh, one-off lines and stuff and like what well, it's one of his is the you know a language that doesn't affect the way you think about program is not worth knowing and it couldn't be any more true could it uh, and you mentioned it with the dialects of English you know like I know British English and then I know American English and that you really want to do things a completely different paradigms completely shifting and completely changing your way of thinking uh, you know, there's no point in learning JavaScript and then moving, although with the prototypical inheritance, maybe a little bit, but like JavaScript and then going to C sharp, that the two are too similar to really have any kind of breakthrough aha moments in your brain. It's when you go to say like, yeah, even go SQL to C sharp or you go C sharp and then you go, I'm going to learn F sharp or I'm going to learn prologue or something like that. That really does, you know, kind of allow you to expand, you know, your programming knowledge. Yes, absolutely. And, and what's interesting is when people learn a new paradigm, they often go back to their, you know, their mainstream language that they use for their day job, and they say, you know, learning F sharp has made me a better C sharp programmer, or learning Smalltalk has made me a better Java programmer, or whatever it is. You know, it's actually interesting. Um, like I say, how useful it is this is not all. This is not about. This is gonna. Is it gonna look, look good in your CV or, or resume? This is all about. Um, you know, is it going to, it's just going to change the way you think. And I, I, you know, especially if you've been programming for a while, it's nice, it's nice to, to learn some different stuff and uh, yeah, it's good. It's good for your brain. It really is because it can get very samey. And the fact that all the languages we really use in a commercial setting and a problem solving setting today are so samey, it's kind of boring. Uh, and it's kind of it's not liberating and it's not actually beneficial because there there could be a language out there that is far more suited uh, to, to the problem space. Absolutely. And I mean, in my uh, talk, I do a little example of using Prologue, which I think is very underrated uh, and not just Prologue, but other things like SAT solvers and stuff. They can solve programs. I mean, they can solve really complicated things really easy. I mean, in my talk, I showed how to how, how to solve a Sudoku in in prologue in like 10 lines of code 
Um, it's fascinating. That's so amazing. And the way you're able to explain it and, you know, and again, mapping that model, it just works so well. Yeah. So if you're doing anything like that, that is a fantastic tool to use. You don't, you know, trying to do that kind of stuff in, in Java or, or you know, would be, a, would be a pain. It's just use the right, use the right tool for the job that not everything is a hammer, you know. Absolutely. And that, that actually then moves on, yeah, to so logic programming paradigms. So what is logic, the logic paradigm? Well, the idea is is that everything is a fact. You have facts and then you have rules which relate facts together. And the cool thing about facts, if I say that, you know, uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4, it's you can do it both ways. This Pogolog has this thing called unification where if I say, what what do you have to add to get 4? And it says, you know, 2 plus 2. And then you say, well, what is 2 plus 2? And it says 4. The, it, it works. It's, you know, there's an equality sign which kind of, makes both things, you know, things which are equal to each other are equal to the same thing. It's a classic, uh, goes all the way back to the Greeks. And, um, you know, once you set up a program this way, you get some very interesting things where you say, this thing must be this thing, and this th- other thing must be this thing, and therefore these two other things must be similar. So like in, in, in Sudoku, you say, well, everything, uh, you know, every number in each row has to be different, and every every number in each column has to be different, and every number in each block has to be different. And that is it. I mean, that is enough information for the, the, it, for it to figure out what the answer is. You know, I mean, it's that's you know, this uh, you, you can express things that way. You don't have to uh, ex- tell it how to do it. You can you just set up the set up what the problem is in terms of various equalities and various constraints. You know, absolutely. And it's you know, you, you mentioned there, you know, with the two length, the sequel and the prologue actually in your talk. And how they follow a very declarative approach, the what, not the how philosophy. Uh, I just went, why is that so useful then to, to, to just describe the what and not actually care about the how? Yes, well, so uh, using the relational example, if I want to find all the people who are older than a certain age in SQL, I would, you know, write a SQL query. Find me all the people, you know, select people where age is greater than 50 or whatever. If I was doing this in a low level language like C, I'd have to open up a file and have to read all the records from the file. And I don't care when I'm programming, I don't care how you do it. You know, uh, I, I just say, I, this is what I want to do and how it actually works behind the scenes is really irrelevant. And obviously the SQL engines have a lot of complexity in terms of how they interpret that. Um, and even in a high level, even in working, working in one language, I mean, rather than, even if I was working in C sharp, rather than, um, iterating over a list and adding all the numbers up. If I wanted to create the sum of a list of numbers, I'd probably write a, a function called sum, which takes a list of numbers. And I don't care whether it adds the numbers up from first to last or adds them up from last to first or whether it does it in parallel. I don't care how the thing does it. I just care about what the answer is. That's not my problem I'm trying to solve. That's exactly. your problem. Yeah, that's really a distractions again, isn't it? To try and hide away things that aren't actually part of the real problem you're trying to solve. Exactly. So again, you know, this is just standard best practice in terms of designing an API or designing anything is work at the right level of abstraction and don't concern yourself with things which are relevant. And... Um, you're wasting your time. And obviously there's no, you have to be careful because there's leaky abstractions where, you know, you've got an abstraction and actually you do have to care how it works behind the scenes. Which makes it, it's harder than actually you're better off sometimes just tearing away the abstraction because it doesn't actually help towards the end goal. That's right. But so, um, 
on the whole, though, I mean, you have to be, you just have to be careful. That's that's just you know, design how to design something carefully is a, is a is a tricky problem, and it requires a balance of this and this. But it's it's to me, this is a focus on design, and I think we we all uh, as developers should spend more time thinking about design and less time thinking about coding in terms of what's important. You know, people. One of the side effects of the whole agile thing, unfortunately, has been this thing of let's just start hacking away. You don't design is the whole problem, isn't it? It's throwing away design phase, full stop. Yeah, I mean, the big design. People are scared. We don't want to do a big design up front, and it's just a bad design is a bad word. And yeah, people have been burned by spending six, you know, six months writing a design document that never gets implemented. Or what's, yeah, absolutely. But design is a really important thing, and then. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad to see that sort of design is actually coming back. Uh, what's his name? John uh, Oosterhout, who's the guy, the tickle guy, has just got a new book called uh, Philosophy of Software Design. He's been around for a long time too. He's and he's all about thinking. You know, thinking, think before you code. Find as you know, don't just start coding. Do a bit of thinking. And he's got some very useful tips in his book. Uh, some of them which kind of directly contradict uh, some of the stuff that comes out, some of the agile people. <laughs> but I, I've, I've been reading his book, and it's actually, I would recommend it. It's actually very good. It's, it's a lot of it, it's, it's, you know, if you've had a lot of experience, this is, it's like, yeah, this is kind of absolutely the right way of doing things, common sense, really. I think we all get burned, don't we? I think, you know, it's to say, like, you get burnt with the whole idea of designing up front too much, and then you get burnt with the other, the opposite. You know, you kind of go the inverse, and it's completely the same problem where I really should have thought this through before I started, you know, banging away at the keyboard. Yeah. I just think some there's some people, you know, unfortunately, um, people like to kind of follow some people's, you know, um, ideas without without kind of reflecting on them. And some of the agile people, it's like they say, you know, you must follow these rules. And like anytime someone follows rules blindly, I think you're just asking for trouble. You need to, you need to think about it. There's always a shade of gray and, a, you know, there's always pros and cons for using different things. And as you say, yeah, rules aren't, you know, really programming isn't rules. It is, you know, a bit of everything. And it's, it's all dependent on the problem you're solving and constraints and everything around it. And what you really need and what's best for the customer, you know, and and I think the whole, you know, this whole idea of startup culture and everything. And the idea is we want to ship something very quick. So we want to be coding. We don't want to be wasting time. And then we'll just chuck it away is is the philosophy, isn't it? If it doesn't work or if we do get some money or we get, you know, some success, we can rewrite it. But good design will aid in that being able to separate this in such a way that rewriting certain parts will not affect other parts. And, you know, this, you know, this is really the value. There is value in thinking up front. Can we cross, you know, can we separate these? Have we got any context that we can, you know, kind of separate? And microservices is a good example because people say, well, the great thing about microservices, is they, you know, they force you to modularize your code and it's like well yeah but you can modularize your code without having to use microservices exactly we're all we're all big enough and you know clever enough to kind of think about code in separate namespaces um but i do think because it's always that thing of once it starts or it's very easy to cross the boundary people are going to do it and it, it as you say that then what people do is the extreme of that which is i will physically not let you do that uh, you know, by the fact of there being a real, you know, kind of, ba- you know, network barrier between us to do this. Uh, but it's sad because, yeah, the languages all have namespacing. The languages all have, you know, design, you know, abstractions around this kind of concept to be able to break up code. 
why not you know why not use and abuse, you know take advantage of that absolutely i mean yeah exactly languages already have this stuff it's it is sad i mean there are there are genuine reasons for microservices but modularity um isn't you know it's not one of them yeah, you can certainly do modular monoliths, and like it's like as the classic saying, I think Simon Brown says, if you what makes you think you can, if you can't do a, a modular monolith, what makes you think you can do a modular microservices? You know, and you've just you've just brought in way more complexity into your code base. If I, you know, you're better off having the big ball of mud that is a monolith than the big ball of mud that is a bunch of microservices. A distributed ball of mud. I know. It, even, even worse, worse. It's even worse. at least with a big ball of mud that's in a monolith you can refactor it you know exactly you can see the code in one place and you haven't got this you know asynchronous action you know this weird implicit yeah it yeah it, it get i think the the uh, the intentions are there but maybe it's the execution and kind of you know that being more on the fact of again but this is funny this is the design part because people are not thinking of the design up front and the fact that they've got these barriers which are implicit you know like explicit microservice barriers it stops them from being able to hack this design together as opposed to in the world of not designing at all i can just do stuff whatever i want to do and i like i say i think the agile unfortunately i mean i think agile as a concept i mean anything with fast feedback loops is a good idea um, unfortunately, some of the agile uh, dogma about and not being not designing things, and I've seen some some really terrible examples of it's like you don't have to design it; you just have to make the test pass. It's like, that that just I have to say that makes me really angry. Like the, the testing is all about the the idea to test first is to make a good design. Yeah, exactly. It's to design good APIs. <laughs> it's completely going against the uh, the philosophies. I know. It's just anyway. This it's uh, I could I could rant about that, but that's a whole. That's a whole <laughs> thing. Well, we'll go into something that's near and dear to your heart. Um, you, one of the other languages you speak about is ML and functional paradigm. Uh, we've spoken a lot about functional, but it would be good maybe for the for the you know the for this actual episode, maybe to just discuss, you know, what is then the functional paradigm? Yeah, so the, ML was actually um, a language which was designed in as part of a, a theorem-proving tool, um, and it was back in 1972. So that's, I mean, you know, that's a long time ago. That's about the same time that C was invented. So anyone who says that functional programming is a, is a new thing and it's like a trendy new thing, it's like, no, it's as old as C at least. So, um, I mean, the idea is with functional programming is that you, you work with functions and you have, a, you know, a function has an input and output and you give it an input and it comes out with an output. I mean, that's not very different from a procedure in a, in a, in a imperative language. The difference is that because it's sort of stealing from mathematical functions, uh, the, the data, everything has an output. So you don't have statements, you have expressions and, um, Things tend to be immutable by default because you're trying to emulate mathematical stuff. And once you start programming with functions, all the tools that we, you know, the way that we build programs is by connecting functions together, by composing functions into bigger functions. And if we want to parameterize something, we parameterize things with a function. And if you want to do sort of a dependency injection, we do that with a function. So everything, you know, you just use functions as the building blocks for everything. Now, that wasn't necessarily, I don't think that was the original idea behind ML. It wasn't, you know, but I mean, this is what, how it's evolved over the over time. By the time you got to the early 80s, when standard ML was kind of, solidified this is you know this is how people are doing stuff so i mean the functional programming 
definitely came out of ML and a whole bunch of other cool things like uh, uh, union records and stuff came out at the same time. It's just a lot of very cool things came out of ML, you know, that, that, that whole branch. ML itself took a while to, to you know, it was invented in 72, but it didn't really standardize until the 80s, you know. But there's a whole branch of um, programming languages which are still being used today, F-sharp, OCaml, and so on. And, you know, it's a really, really useful branch to learn about. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, because you start, you put these constraints in place, you have this fundamental design of a language, and it's interesting how things trickle down. So, you know, like the ability to do expression-based, like, you know, being being expression-based brings in all this wealth, you know, the composition, the ability to do all these things that, you know, kind of, you know, amounts to such a powerful language, you know, in its entirety. And it's interesting because you mentioned that, you know, you mentioned that ML and SQL, so they are both expression-based or expression-orientated languages. And the ability, you know, this trait, well, why then is this trait so useful? Yeah, but, well, because, I mean, well, composition is the fundamental tool for building bigger things. And I always use the Lego analogy. You know, you make big pieces of Lego from a bunch of small pieces of Lego. And the bigger pieces of Lego can also be added on because they're all designed to be added onto. Just like another more programming example is like a little, all the Unix utilities. They're designed to be input and output. You know, when you pipe an output from one thing into the input of the next thing using pipes, they're designed to be components. And this is a really powerful way of constructing large systems is you have little components. Each each one is designed to do one thing well, and you glue them together into bigger components. And the thing about functional programming is it really, really forces you to use that approach. You don't really have any other choice. With object-oriented programming, there are other ways of, of making programs and, and the classic one is you you know you build these objects and the the, the problem with you you know you easy, very easy to make these massive objects these kind of god objects that have thousands of methods or that you have this web of objects which all talk to each other but it's very hard to disentangle them because the there's kind of circular references between them and they and there's inheritance and stuff it's not always very clear what's going on in an object-oriented programming, it's not just you know. So even though you've got encapsulation at the micro level, you don't you have a lot of tangling up at the at the macro level. But with a functional language, it's composition all the way down, all the way up. It's exactly the same technique. You just glue the functions together, and because data is immutable, and because everything's got an input, and everything's got an output, the composition works at all levels in the program, from the very smallest level all the way up to the top level. And then, the, and then the, one of the others is the symbolic paradigm. Just wondering, maybe you could touch upon what actually then is the symbolic paradigm. Well, it's basically Lisp. I mean, there are a few other languages like that, but the idea is that you're working that the, the the data and the code are sort of the same thing. So um, you're working with sim symbols. You're not. I mean, the, like C is you, everything's an int. Or everything's a, a byte in C. Everything is a word on the machine. In Lisp, everything is a symbol. So it's all about how you interpret the symbol. Do you interpret it as an integer, or do you interpret it as a symbol, which you can you know, do other things with? And this fact that you can mix and match between the different ways of uh, interpreting the things, the atoms in, in Lisp, that's what they call them, is, is, um, is part of the power. So you can... You can, you can have the same piece of code that actually does something, but that, that you can then 
treat that same piece of code as data. You could be rewriting the program in the same manner as you would be, you know, treating. Yeah, as you say, yeah, treat it as data, and you can rewrite the program, and it brings macro programming to this whole new level. I think people think of the C macros and they think of that kind of, you know, this is completely different because of the fundamentals in the language using S expressions and things. It really does, you know, blend so well. There's, there's, again, there's no, just like, um, just sort of like small talk and, and, and other things. There is no syntax, really. Everything's just an S expression. So you don't have to, you don't have if then statements and you don't have for loops and you don't, none of that. The language doesn't have any of that stuff. So, um, it, you know, there's a very, very simple set of primitives and the entire language is built out of that. And, it, and it's funny because, uh, again, Alice Perlis has another, I think this is a bit more tongue-in-cheek, of this program is neither value everything and the cost of nothing. By the way, anyone who's interested, if you go and search for Alan Perlis epigrams, um, you'll find a whole bunch of really good ones. Um, yeah, he, his stuff is very good. He was making a thing on that. There's this classic thing about... Um, people who know the price of everything and the value, uh, yeah, the price of everything and the value of nothing, especially like economists or something. And so he's making a, he's making a reversal. They know the value of everything and the cost of nothing because the, in those days, I think he was just talking about the list being very slow compared with a, an imperative language like Algol. It's, it, ta- it takes its up these languages like the functional languages as well, because you know, the fundamentals, because you're on these abstraction levels, you need the fundamentals down and things underneath it to make them, you know, the immutability like is a very, can be a very costly thing, you know, with memory and stuff, keeping everything in, it could be like, wow, how are we going to do this? Um, but it's making the programmer's life easier, but the underlining implementations obviously need to be more complex. Exactly. I mean, you need to have garbage collection, for example, and Lisp had garbage collection. And it's you know, garbage collection back in the '60s was pretty slow, um, and now we have a very fast garbage collection. In fact, the the, the latest garbage collections are probably more efficient than than what a human can do. So you know, it just it just takes a while for this stuff to sort of become popular. Same with functional programming, uh, it used to be very slow, but um, it can be you know, it can be faster now, especially. With you know, with uh, machines, uh, CPUs that have pipelines, you can do parallel stuff on them and stuff. And just a lot of the stuff. I mean, ironically, that you know, the uh, functional programming, even with even with all the extra heavyweight, it's it it's most of the performance. I think is just this code that kind of gets in the way of what you want to do. So there's a classic thing. If you look, someone did a thing of a Ruby on Rails app. And, you know, you send a, a request in and how many methods and how many objects does it have to go through to actually do something? And it's like a couple of hundred easily. And it's like, is it really, do you really need to go through that much stuff to get something done? So you can you can still be high level, but you can also be more explicit and not wrap everything in objects and still get stuff done, you know. So it doesn't, you don't have to sacrifice abstraction in order to be, something which is more what's the just you know more close to the the problem domain absolutely and it's interesting because garbage collection is one of those that is very interesting field to be honest it's one of those things that's kind of often kind of overlooked but is a very interesting field like how you know languages do garbage collection Uh, i highly recommend people check it out yeah garbage collection I, i mean i think all languages should have garbage collection unless you're doing you know real time systems or something but um it's a you know garbage collection is, is definitely a very interesting topic and it's f- super powerful. I mean, in general, you can actually do, like I say, a, a good garbage collection can be better than what a human can do. So, 
Definitely. And, and in the talk, you actually touch upon a paper, uh, Worse is Better, in regards to this. I just, it would be really interesting, maybe, just, you know, would you mind expanding upon that and actually what the, the paper discusses and, and kind of your thoughts on Lisp as a language? Uh, yeah, well, Richard, this is written by Richard Gabriel back in the, I guess it was the early 90s, I'm not sure. Um, he was a big Lisp guy, and he was kind of disappointed that Lisp basically lost the battle and that C kind of took over. Um, and you could say the same thing about Smalltalk losing out to Java or something. And he's like, why? Why is Lisp is so obviously better than C in every way? And why did people prefer C? And he, he came up, he wrote a very interesting essay, which is that what people in C cared about was simplicity. Uh, it's like, and they cared about simplicity of implementation, and if the, the person who had to uh, work with C had to do all this stuff to get it work, or you know that's their problem. Uh, the list people and the small pool people wanted something to be kind of beautiful and complete. And if it had to be complex, uh, you could hide the complexity behind the interface. But you know the, the important thing was to give the the end user a nice, beautiful, simple uh, interface that would be everything they wanted. Um, and what's interesting about that is that. Because the C style of programming meant that you couldn't, you know, you needed a lot of help to get stuff work. It created a whole kind of ecosystem of people writing C manuals and C training and C third-party libraries and da 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 da. And if you have a system which is like perfect, there is no ecosystem. There's nobody. It doesn't need to be improved because it's perfect. Nobody writes. You know, nobody helps out. There's no, you know, and. Yeah, obviously it's not 100% perfect, but the, you know, the idea is that there's a whole community of people in C learning C who help each other try and figure out how to do it. And these people have a vested interest in making that ecosystem successful. And so it's not a surprise that, for example, the, the open source, it was very, very big in, in you know C languages, C and C++, very big on open source. Lisp open source and Smalltalk open source never really took off. They were, I mean, there is obviously open source, but it's they're just much more closed systems because they, you know, they, they're designed. They people put a lot of effort into designing them. So it's it's just fascinating. And I mean, he was absolutely right. And it's still it's still to today where systems um, uh, you you can see it with PHP taking off. Um, you can see it with MongoDB being more successful than, you know, a nice, beautiful system that doesn't have problems. Because with MongoDB, there a lot of people started using it. It was really easy to get started. They had all sorts of problems, but then they were, once they then had a, an interest in solving those problems and a whole, you know, industry grew up around fixing those problems, you know. It's, it's so interesting. It's more of a psychological thing, isn't it? It's more of a kind of human need thing as well. And it's because, I mean, you can see it, you know, in other, play, you know, things in life you know like betamax versus vhs and and all these other hd dvd versus you know blu-ray whatever side you're on and stuff and whatever wins out or you know it, it really is kind of interesting what people take sides to and then if you say if more people invest in if something's broken and they're likely to help fix it then you stop more people flock to it and then it becomes this bigger herd yeah it's i mean this is it's very interesting and that's why he wrote it. His the idea that something which is worse is from a kind of a technological point of view, it's worse. Why does that succeed over something which is obviously technically better? And and that's what is one of his frustrations. But he, it was a very insightful uh, essay. No, definitely, absolutely. I'll put it in the show notes. And what what are your opinions on Lisp? 
Uh, like, are, are you a fan of Lisp? Um, I actually have never used Lisp that much myself. Um, I was when I, you know, like I say, I, I, you're a small talker. Small talker <laughs> yeah, so this is like the great rival of uh, small talk. Um, I, I think, I think one of the things about I actually have a little blog post about this about languages, which are it's it's a little bit like the worse is better languages like Lisp and small talk are what I call um, solipsistic languages. Where they 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 live in their own little universe, and uh, which is great if you live in that universe, but they don't really, you know, make an effort to communicate outside of that language, uh, that universe. And then some languages are, you know, uh, introvert languages, and some are extrovert languages. So extrovert languages like to do I/O, and introvert languages don't like to do I/O. And um, you know, an extrovert language you can tell an extrovert language because on the very first page of the user manual or the textbook is like, hello world, writing to a file. That's it. Print, print out the screen. Yeah, that's it. You know, in, if it's an introvert language, which really doesn't like doing IO, uh, hello world, like in Haskell, hello world's like chapter seven of a, of a textbook, you know, um, just because it's, it's not the most important thing about the language. And so I think, you know, I think Lisp is a, a language that definitely changes the way you think. But, um, I mean, it's interesting that Clojure has really – I mean, the, the, the classical Lisp people, the kind of serious Lisp people don't really like Clojure because it's not – doesn't do things properly. But it, what it has done is it's, it's really focused on integrating with the outside world. You know, it runs on a JVM or also .NET. It, uh, it spends a lot of time being compatible with other libraries. You know, it's designed to do websites and stuff. It's it's it's, it's – uh, they, you know, they, Rich Hickey spent a lot of time thinking about how to make a, a much more usable Lisp that would fit into the modern world, and I think he succeeded really well. So it's one of those. It's closure is a language I'd be very interested in learning. I, I, it seems to be a very well designed language, um, but I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Really, really interesting. And um, another, actually, moving back to the functional world a little bit, you know, with the ML, like Haskell came from a different school. Yeah, well, they, I mean, the ML was was um, an imperative language and said it had mutable state. And, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't designed to be a pure functional language. Now, Miranda and then the Haskell, which descended from that, were designed to be pure. They're designed to be what we'd say lazy, meaning that the, the, the answers aren't evaluated straight away. The answers are only evaluated sort of when you need them. And that creates a whole different style of programming. Um, very, very different way of thinking. And so, I mean, I think obviously ML was a big influence on Miranda, but I'm not sure exactly what the history is, but it's definitely now would be considered sort of different branch of the functional world. I think there's the ML family and then there's the sort of Haskell Miranda family. Uh, and there's other ones. And what's interesting is also is, is academic stuff sort of trickling down. People complain about Haskell being very academic, um, but most of the programming paradigms that we use started off as academic ideas. I mean, relational database so was an academic thing originally. Uh, ML was a, you know, designed for a theorem prover. Um, so anyone who uses link, you know, anyone who uses lambdas, they're using academic concepts, which have been gradually migrated their way into mainstream programming. So, um, you know, it's true that, you know, not necessarily that you can use the academic stuff straight away, but I wouldn't also put down the academic side of things because it's uh, it's a very important influence on, on programming. 
Absolutely. And finally, the other paradigm that you touch upon is the stack base concatenative programming. Yeah, well, that's basically fourth and there's modern versions of fourth, like there's one called Factor and there's a couple of other ones. Um, it's just another language, which is a mind blowing, you know, you, you, like I say, we're fish in water. We think that the water is, we're not even aware that imperative programming, we live and breathe imperative programming. We think that everything has the only possible way of doing things. And fourth is another, is a completely different way of doing it. It was designed as a, as a low level language. I believe it was for doing telescopes, you know, and, um, it, it runs on bare metal. Um, you know, it's, it's used in, still used in satellites and stuff today. Um, so it's very powerful. You can use, um, you know, it, it uses directly to the CPU, but it's it's not an imperative language in the way that C is. It's a completely different style of program. You basically put stuff on the stack and, you know, everything you either put stuff on or you take stuff off. And that's it. That's the entire language right there. But again, it, you, you program in a completely different way as a result of thinking that way. Uh, they they program in what they call words, and it's just a, a bunch of instructions. It's, it's it's actually a composition. Another way of building bigger things from smaller things. You just compose a bunch of words together, give it a name, and that's another word. And then you compose those words together and give that a name, and that's a bigger thing. So that's how you do um, fourth fourth style programming. But it's again, I don't, you know, it's not. I I wouldn't say it's super useful for mainstream programming. Again, it's quite useful if you're doing microcontrollers and stuff. Um, but it's a, it, it's just a different way of thinking about programming. I think it's worth learning a language like that because it it change it helps you get your head out of the water and 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 learn a different way of thinking. Well, it has the it definitely has the Galaxy Brain seal of approval. Absolutely, <laughs> I would be really interested to know kind of your opinion on the concept of a general purpose programming language. I think you know chucking languages into this general purpose uh, kind of you know just list of like languages that are general purpose that can be used for anything. What what what, what do you feel around that that idea of a programming language being just general purpose? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's certainly true that you want to. You know, like a language like C Sharp or Java, it's very general. You can do pretty much anything with it. Um, and I, I don't have a problem with that because it's not just the language. What makes something successful is not just the programming language. It's the ecosystem that goes around with it. It's the fact that people have the experience with it. You know, there's the the libraries that go with it and the, you know, the when you're doing the DevOps and the deployments and all this stuff, there's a whole, you know, um, ecosystem that goes around with it so once you've you know once you're in the java ecosystem uh it's nice to stay there because you've got a lot of knowledge that otherwise you'd, you'd have to throw away you know the, the way that fourth works doesn't fit in with that and the way that haskell works doesn't yeah, fit you're in trying that. to give that to someone to deploy and be like hey work out this stack please yeah, you know and like- yeah exactly so i mean i can you know i can sympathize with just having one way of doing it and especially in a in a big company it's nice if everyone's pretty much doing the same thing and everyone can look at each other's code and and figure out what's going on so yes i mean i you know it's it is useful i think what the definition of a general purpose language is changing it used to be that c was a general purpose language and then what we think is standard now is changing so garbage collection is now considered standard um and now in the last 10 years or so the functional programming stuff is now coming in having a lambda way of doing lambdas is now sort of becoming standard having link style thing or stream style thing map produces something and i think 
that will continue, and I think what will become standard will be things like immutability by default, non-nullability by default. Um, I think that some types, union types, will work their way into languages. Will have exhaustive pattern matching. All these kinds of things you can see them. You can see them now coming down the pipeline, and I think in ten years that will be considered standard. I think some of these things are going to be quite hard to retrofit into languages because things like non-nullability and immutability by default, that's really hard to retrofit. Um, we'll have to see how that goes. But, um, you know, I do think that, that what we can what we consider standard will, will be changing over the next 10 years. All the current popular languages have a very C-like syntax. And one of the things, you know, you emphasize in the talk is the fact that there isn't a world out there that is not like this, you know. Statements don't, well, statements don't have to be statements; they can be expressions, and every line doesn't have to end with a semicolon. Um, you know, why do you think this, these languages and this type, this syntax, has kind of stayed around and become so popular? And kind of, it's just the norm. You know, people are very, you know, every language. If I'm going from JavaScript to C sharp to, you know, C, all, all of these languages have this kind of style. That's a good question because it didn't used to be true. Um, back in the eighties and nineties. A lot of languages, not all languages, had the curly brace. You had Pascal, you had uh, Visual, you had Basic, uh, you had Smalltalk. Yeah, I mean, a lot of languages which are popular didn't have that. I personally don't like the curly brace thing in general, and I think it's it's kind of weird that you have something like Reason ML, which is a curly brace wrapper on top of a camel, and it's just because people are scared of looking at a language which doesn't have curly braces, which is kind of shocking to me. I mean, we're, we're programmers. We're supposed to be open to new ideas. And I've literally, I've, yeah, I mean, I've heard people say, I literally can't read a language which doesn't have curly braces. It's like, I mean, I can understand you say, well, I don't prefer it or I, you know, whatever, but literally I can't read a language that doesn't have that. That's, that's not good. Uh, and I mean, and syntax is the, is the least of it. I mean, you know, the, the, synt- the, the way that they work behind the scenes, the semantics of the language is completely different. So JavaScript has very different semantics from Java, even though they might look identical. Um, and that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the problems is that, that you used to, you see it's got the same loop, it's got the same curly braces, it must work the same behind the scenes, and it doesn't. And so you have to learn that stuff anyway. So the syntax is really the, the tiniest part of a language, but it, it, people, it's the first thing you see, and so people... Um, get very upset if they see something they don't like. But I, I have to say, I think that's a lack of breadth in people's educations. Uh, I just think it's sad that people, I mean, I, you know, I've been, pro, I, you know, I probably programmed in 20 different languages over my career. And it's like, you show me a language with some weird syntax, like, you know, like S expressions or something. So yeah, okay. I mean, I don't understand it now, but I'm sure, you know, I trust the thing is that I trust people I respect. If someone says, you know, S expressions might be hard to get used to, but, you know, give it a couple of weeks and it, you'll get used to it and it is fine. Then I will I will trust those people and I will say, okay, um, I believe you. You know, it looks weird to me, but I, I believe you when you say that it's worth it and I will, I will make the effort. You know, because I think that at least most of these things are really superficial. And it's so funny, though, isn't it? Because it is superficial and it's completely buys a buy of what the language is. And as you say, you know, we familiarity really is a curse of it because we then assume something that is definitely not the case in some languages just because they're using, you know, the same syntax doesn't mean they'll use it in the same way. A good example is, is JavaScript, which is really 
a prototype language. The original version of JavaScript was based on self, the language, self language, which in turn was a kind of prototype oriented, a prototype version of Smalltalk. Like IO. Yeah. And so people don't understand prototype based languages. And all sorts of stuff happens in JavaScript, which is kind of weird. And so they eventually put... Well, that's why they had to put the new in, yeah, didn't they? And then <laughs> yeah. they put classes in. So it's like, well, people don't like prototypes. Let's make it a class, make an object-oriented language so it looks more like C or C++ or, or you know, Java, whatever. It's like, that's an example of the, of, the, the, of the pressure, people really not understanding the language because they're deceived by the syntax. Well, the new syntax, the complexities around the new syntax and how what new actually does under the hood, you know, because people, it was included like that because of like similarities to Java and C sharp and whatnot, or Java probably at the time, really. And and the fact that it's fundamentally different under the hood, like it, but, but because of the familiarity, people get very confused by it and it's not right. You should have it completely different then, but people wouldn't use it because it looked too different. It's a curse, isn't it? If JavaScript looked more like Lisp, um, you know, it would probably be a more accurate understanding of how people, you know, how, how it should be used. Um, but then, yeah, people people wouldn't like it because it looked too weird. It is so fun. Yeah, it's strange. And like ES6, as you say, with classes, it just completely changed. You know, it's it's completely, it's again, it's, it's, it's this level of abstraction on top of something that fundamentally will not change because, you know, the fundamental language is a prototypical language under the hood. But people want to use it in a certain way, and the same the same thing with reason ML. I mean, I'm not that familiar with it, but it must be a bit disconcerting if you're thinking it's a C type language, and then all of a sudden it has these semantics from an ML type language. But on the hand, it 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 does work because people, I guess, people are willing to try it because it looks familiar. Uh, There's just something I'm always surprised at developers who are so conservative. Could it be a more corporate thing, a business orientated kind of approach where I can probably get this into the stack because it looks like it, even though the fund, you know, like people won't spend enough time to understand that this is subtly different, but because it looks like it, it's more likely. No, I, I've seen this for, for people just learning on, on their own time, learning a new language. They are very, I've seen, it's surprising to me how many people are reluctant to learn a language that doesn't have curly brace syntax. And and these are these are, these are, you know supposedly we're developers who are willing to learn new technologies, and I I'm, I am very surprised, and I think that's actually new because I think it's a it's a self reinforcing thing because you learn you know you learn JavaScript you learn Java you learn C sharp, all these languages have the same syntax, and you're not exposed to any other languages which have different syntaxes, and and back in like I say back in the seventies or the eighties or even the early nineties before the, this kind of syntax took over, you were, if you were a decent programmer, you would have been exposed to four or five different types of syntax. You know, you would have known a little bit of Fortran, a little bit of BASIC, a little bit of Pascal, whatever, and they'd all be different. And so you, having a different syntax wouldn't, wouldn't scale you off because, you, you know, you say, okay, it's just a different, different way of doing stuff. Do you think it stunts the growth, the development of like the languages and like the language eco space because of this kind of now we've we've reached this point where languages that are used, very popular languages, are all very samey, and you obviously have these niches, you know, of, of people who are you know developing and and they're very interesting different niches, but trying to bring it into the mainstream, it, it, it's very hard to because this has got this tie now with this language syntax that isn't going to change. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, it is, it is funny. I do think the syntax is like people make jokes about COBOL 
Um, you know, but this is the COBOL of, of programming language syntax. It's, you know, the curly braces, just, it's a coincidence. It's almost like QWERTY keyboards. You know, people, a lot of, a lot of developers say, oh, QWERTY keyboards are so inefficient. I'm going to be using, they spend a lot of time setting up a different kind of keyboard map. Meanwhile, for the program language, they'll pick a curly brace language because they, it's, it's, I'm just saying it's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because people spend a lot of time optimizing other aspects of their life. But, you know, I mean, like a, a language, I mean, one of the reasons I like white space languages is they literally take up a lot less space on the screen. So you can see like twice as much code on the, on your screen. And one, and I like languages with type infants, so I don't have to type as much, you know, and these are all absolutely good things that, you know, I think every language should have. I just, and, uh, it is funny to me that uh, that people were so resistant to that. It's yeah, it's a self fulfilling prophecy, though, isn't it? And and the thing is, is like I think maybe it's schools and stuff. Uh, you know, the you know universities and people learning languages. The languages that they're going to be learning are all like this. So, and the less time they'll spend looking at other languages, and as you say, like maybe in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, when things weren't flushed out as much, you had to use different languages, and you had far more interest in other languages. Now that this is the dominant winner kind of just stays the same which is very sad it is it is sad i mean i like i say i hope that um i hope that ml languages i i got hope that uh you know f sharp and ocaml and haskell uh will take off and introduce people to a different way of thinking i think they've got the they, i think they right now they have the most potential you're doing amazing work in that field with the, the education and teaching you're doing. So you're definitely doing your piece for it. Yeah, I'm, doing, I'm trying anyway, yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, say, Scott, thank you so much, man, for coming on again. I think uh, I've, I've definitely spent about a good hour of your uh, Bank Holiday Monday uh, chatting about all this stuff, but it's always so much fun talking to you about all this, all these interesting topics. And I just think it's my pleasure. I love, I love this stuff. Uh, it'd be really interesting. I mean, I don't know whether you can spill it, but... The book you're saying you're writing a new book. Have you got any ideas of what this is going to be on, or do you want to keep that under wraps? No, no, it's just a, it's a book that I I started like five years ago and I haven't finished. Which is it's it's called Understanding Functional Programming, uh, and it's basically my all these all these talks that I do about you know thinking about composition and railway oriented programming and all this stuff. I just think I could turn that into a book, which is not language specific. It's really how do you think about functional programming. That is going to be very apt and very relatable to a lot of it. I can't wait for it. Are you are you doing it for Pragprog again? No, I, well, I haven't decided yet. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll I'll see. I might self publish it. I don't know. That's so good, dude. Well, say audience, it's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com. Or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.